Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Moki. Let's get started. So this month of May 2020 marks the beginning of my international series where we feature environmentalists from other parts of the world. And we begin with featuring environmentalists from Kenya, my home country. I was born and raised in Nairobi and I am a second generation Kenyan Indian. My inspiration to pursue the environmental path came from my experiences of growing up in Kenya. And my intention has always been to find a way to give back to my country. So when I started this podcast, I decided that I would feature the diversity of Kenyan environmentalists. And that would be one small way I could raise interest and awareness on our eco-warriors addressing our environmental challenges in Eastern Africa. So we begin with Sam Dindi. I came across Sam when I started reading Mazingira Yetu, of which he is a co-founder of. Sam's story inspires me because despite the many struggles he faces fighting for the environment, he really pushes through. It's very hard to be an environmentalist in Kenya because there is so much bureaucracy and corruption. We talk about his struggles and what he does to take care of himself. We also talk about some of the environmental projects he's working on, including developing environmental curricula to educate youth and activate them to lead ecosystem restoration projects, such as along the Nairobi River. So let's get into it. So through my research on environmentalists in Kenya, I came across your name and saw quite a few articles about your work in creating awareness in the Kenyan and also the the African community around issues of environmentalism. And so you're often considered as to be one of the most influential emerging environmental activists in the continent and even in Kenya. So could you tell us about how you got inspired to pursue this journey in environmental sustainability? It began when I was in primary school. I was passionate about geography. In the night or in the evenings when back at home, I used to share some of my homework with mom and she could tutor me. She, she's also passionate about geography and stuff. That's why she, she could tell me that while at school, geography was among her favorite subjects. And by coincidence, I too loved the subject. So she, she really inspired and motivated me in loving the subject. And when I went to high school again, geography was among my best subjects. And going to college or university, Natural sciences were among my first choice. Mm-hmm. And what is it that was of interest to you and in specifically within like the natural sciences? My career choice, when I was still as a 13-year-old, I wanted to become a geologist. Mm. Okay. Because I, I used to love rocks so much. I could just look at a rock and could tell this is a sedimentary rock. Or metam- those kind of rocks, I could just tell them from how they look. Mm-hmm. But somewhere in between there, things didn't work out and I had to deviated more to natural sciences. Yeah. What didn't work out? Well, in high school, I had some financial problems. So it affected my academics. So I I could spend most of the time at home. I couldn't go to school because of finances. So my grades deteriorated so much that by the time I, I sat for my final exam in high school, I didn't perform to the level that I was expecting. So I couldn't get 
my first choice course at the university. Oh, I'm sorry about that. But I guess the outcome is that you've been able to kind of create a path for yourself and you're making an impact in Kenya, at least, and also in the continent. So I guess depending on how you're looking at it, it could be a blessing or a curse. So in terms of your journey through the environmental space, you're the director of the environmental magazine, Mazingira Yetu. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Mazingira came about, I think, when I was, I was in my final year in college, whereby I started a blog called Mazingira Yetu. That was somewhere in 2010 there, but my colleagues at the university could not understand what, what a blog is all about. Why am I blogging? Because people's mindset was after finishing college, is either go to Kenya, wildlife service, or this NGO world or the government world. So for me, I was there advocating about the blog, I could write pieces, ask people to come and read. So after college, when I came out, after nearly a year, after my internship, I didn't have what to do. So it's when I thought of, let me start visiting schools and sharing them the knowledge that I have on natural sciences, especially the environmental-based sciences. So when I was visiting these schools, they could ask me for, for a reading material something that is simple, something that they could relate with. So it's when I thought of starting a magazine that's called Mazingere, which, which is Swahili. In English, it means our environment. That was around 2012. And that's how it began. It began just four pages, just four pages coming out after every quarter. And currently, it's on, it has around 40, 40 pages and the readership is quite wide. So that's how it began. Wow, that's, that's quite impressive. When you're trying to work with school children on environmental topics, what do you try to keep in mind when you're trying to communicate with them on these issues? As I visit school, I usually visit the school a day prior. I visit the school and the area around it so that to understand the environment better. Because we may go to maybe to a certain school in in the slums of Nairobi, maybe the biggest challenge is water pollution, air pollution. And go to a certain school, maybe in Western Kenya, near Kakamega Forest, their challenge maybe is, is uh, maybe illegal logging, maybe human wildlife conflict. So you tell them, make something in accordance to the area, the challenge that they're facing in the area. Because you cannot go to Kakamega or go to or Kital or somewhere else and start talking about elephants. Yeah, They cannot relate to that. So you have to bring something that's closer to them that they can easily understand. Then after they understand that is when now you start moving out to the more complex issues affecting them and the whole world and the whole world. So then it picks up very well. Yeah. And I can imagine that the kids get really excited about learning a new topic. Is there anything in particular that they are more interested in? It depends on how you bring it out. It's not, it's, when you meet them, you tell them this is not an academic, it's not an academic adventure. By the end of it, there'll be an exam. You have to pass with an A or something. No, this is your day-to-day life. How it's affecting you? For example, you tell them, we may find kids who are growing up around a dump site. They'll tell you, we are suffering from respiratory diseases. There's too much smoke coming from the waste, and it's affecting us. So you start talking about that and telling them how can it be addressed? What can they do to keep them safe? So they become interested in that because at the end of the day, it's not an exam-based thing, but it's a lifetime kind of thing. That's how it becomes interesting. Yeah, and you're basically empowering them with that information. 
because they they know that something's impacting their health and their well-being, but they don't necessarily know how to articulate, not articulate themselves, but you're just giving them more information to help them understand kind of what's happening and then provide them with solutions on how they can address whatever is causing a negative impact on their health. Exactly. Okay. And so you tend to take more of like a health perspective to how you educate the students that you work with, essentially. Even uh, let alone the students, even the teachers themselves, because my friends, there are so many schools in Kenya today that they don't have environmental clubs. They have all kinds of clubs, music club, drama, but a majority of them don't have environment clubs. So it's something that, again, you have to take through the teachers because you will not be able to be going to these schools every now and then, but you have to, again, empower the teachers, make them understand what the environmental issues are all about or what they can do to generate that interest among the students when you're not around. And that's what I've been doing. Yeah. In primary school, we had a 4K club. Do they still have those? No, it's not. It's no longer there because uh, agriculture was dropped. You know, the, the curriculum got changed. So many subjects were dropped and agriculture was one of them. And 4K club was with agriculture. So it was dropped. So it's no longer there. Well, that's unfortunate because I think through that subject, and I can't remember what 4K used to stand for. It used to mean Kungana Kufanya Kusaidia Kenya. Yes. <laughs> Could you translate to our non-Swahili speakers what that means? I think Kungana is like being cooperate. Mm-hmm. Then Kufanya, let's do it. Kusaidia, let's help right. Kenya. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, the focus was mostly on agriculture. And I think that was kind of, it was useful for me at least because I had a better understanding on how our food is made and how our food is grown and the the value of nurturing our land so that it could nurture us. And it also helped me understand better sort of like the geography of Kenya and the diversity of it. So it's unfortunate that they did drop agriculture. I think that decision would kind of have an impact later on where our next generation are disconnected from the land. Yeah, it is. It's already, if you look at some statistics, it shows that the average age of a farmer is around 60 years old. So, and going down with the, the young people of today, they are no longer interested in agriculture. They don't know what agriculture is all about. There are kids in Kenya today even who don't know how a maize plantation looks like, where does maize come from? There are kids who have met, even young people who are in their 20s, they've never planted a tree in their life. Yeah. Yeah. That's really unfortunate. It's a sad state of affair. Yeah, I remember like in our primary school, we also used to have a veggie garden and we used we also used to rear rabbits, if that's the way you say it, to raise them rather. And we used to clean up their hutch and give them like, I think that, those type of experiences were really important for us to understand our relationship with nature. So I'm really sad to hear that we don't have that subject anymore. One element of what you do is that you work with youth and educate them about environmental issues and you try to build their capacity and empower them with the information. And then you have Mazingira Yetu, the magazine, which reaches out to a bigger audience what do you see as your role within this space of environmentalism in Kenya and even in Africa? I'm trying to fill a void that has been existing for quite some time. Because we find uh, 
there's a gap. The older generations of environmentalists are quite elitist. So there was a disconnect to whatever they were discussing about was more, more Eurocentric. They were not relating to people on the ground. Yeah. The issues we're talking about, few could relate to them. Okay. They were doing a great job, yes, the credit given to them, but on the ground, there's a huge disconnect to date. Like, for example, people perceive environmentalism as some, it's just about growing trees. Apart from growing trees, there's nothing more that there's, there's nothing more. Yet, environmentalism mm. would offer a source of employment to thousands of young people who are unemployed today. It's our lifeline, basically, because like a country like Kenya, it depends on wildlife-based tourism. But watching the game in the national parks and stuff. So if we lose all that, then uh, we are going to be in trouble. So my coming in is to make people appreciate the little that they have. The little that they have around them will play a bigger role in their lives, improving their lives economically, health-wise, and in so many ways. Yeah. I believe that's my role. Yeah. and. What are some of the challenges that you've you faced in implementing your your vision or just in closing that gap of knowledge? One thing is that I felt people have got a perception is that environmentalism is something done by whites or person of color. They were skeptical. It's expensive because it sometimes it doesn't generate income. You have to produce the materials. You have to, you have, there's a lot that you have to do prior to going to a particular school. For example, go to a particular school, they may want, you may want to print things like posters, materials, teaching aid materials, and you're working like, like 200 kids, you have to get them stationary and stuff. So, because you don't just go talking, you have to engage them, hands on that experience. So it becomes expensive to implement it. And then uh, there's a time I also face some bureaucracy some bureaucracy and red tape, you're asked to bring this letter, bring this other letter, have you contacted the Ministry of Education, have you contacted the county government? Have you contacted? So there's, a, there's that kind of the bureaucracy itself. So basically those three, and before you forget, uh, most of the schools are exam-oriented. So even finding time for having a club time for, say like when Wednesday in the afternoon, we have got, you have got club times for the school, for extracurricular activities, some schools don't have. It's all about exams. So when you go to a school, you are given only 30 minutes, and 30 minutes is very inefficient. It's, it's not enough. And when after leaving the school, you'll expect the teachers to carry on, but as soon as you leave, they don't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Even the interest among the teachers is quite low, and it's frustrating. I can imagine. I mean, I feel the frustration just hearing you talk about it. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's. I don't know what is the obsession of our culture just with exams and grades and academics. I just wish that we could have a more balanced approach to our educational system. Like, I feel that once I got out into the real world, like, none of that mattered. All the kind of anxiety and stress that I had around, like, doing a three-hour exam, it just feels like it was for nothing, you know? Because there's so many bigger things that matter in life other than just cramming for our exams. I don't know, that's just sort of like my perception to it. And then it just also, it kind of limits our children's creativity 
in what they can do. Because if we're just forcing them into this lane of science, business, whatever, like our traditional subjects are the only things that matter, then I think that can, again, be to the detriment of an individual's growth, I feel. One thing that you mentioned is that what you're finding is we think that environmentalism is like a white person's job. And I had a conversation with a lion conservationist, Shivani Bala, and she has an episode on this podcast, and she mentioned something similar where we think of conservation as something that's not our own to do, like that somebody from outside should be doing. Where do you think that perception comes from? I think the perception came during the colonial times. Because, uh, you know, like, for example, in Kenya, these, all these national parks, some of the national parks in Kenya that time, they were used for game hunting. And then uh, after the colonial times, then it was the whites who were more interested in such, such kind of things. So after then, after the colonial times, the environmental movement, again, it began from the Western world because they were already feeling the impact of climate change, pollution during the, the industrial time. They were feeling it. And it in Africa here. By that time, Africa was still, the air was still clean. We never saw the need of doing a lot of conservation. We were doing okay. We were already doing the conservation through our own traditional practices and through our like knowledge that was passed down through our ancestors. Yeah, so that kind of thing. So the knowledge, we, Africans themselves, we, we were practicing it. But now the model, the mod- conservation model of the European kind of conservation model and our ours were quite different. And so our conservation model was down looked upon as something inferior, it can't work, it can't be replicated. So with time, it started fading. We, that knowledge transfer from our older generations to the young wasn't there. It was filled up with this European kind of thing. And with time, the neocolonialism started believing anything from the West is good. Anything from Africa was bad. That's how we lost it. So we never had that, that self-confidence in our own wasn't there. To me, that's how I think we lost our track somewhere there, somewhere in the 60s and in the 70s. Do you have an opportunity to integrate indigenous knowledge into your environmental education? Yeah, I do. Like I remember at one time I was in, I was in Kisumu. We were trying to introduce bird watching among the kids. So the kids could name all the birds in Luo, but they couldn't, they didn't know the name in English or Swahili. So what we did is uh, we made a poster of the birds and then indicated their scientific name, the English name, and the Luo name. So it became so easy. They were like, ah, so this bird is called this. The same case with maybe the with the wild animals, like for example, hyena, they call it they call it in Luo or Toyo. Then in English, hyena. Then in scientific name, Krokuta, Krokuta. So it makes it so interesting. Integrating all that, it makes learning much easier. Yeah, that's fantastic. I didn't even know that. And this is kind of ignorant of me to even say this, but I didn't know that the animals and the plants had another name in other languages because we were taught in English and Swahili. So I just assumed that that's all they were referred to as. But thanks for sharing that. 
and of course, why why wouldn't we have a name for a hyena in your own local language, right? I mean, thanks for <laughs> making me realize that. So the other element or the other challenges that you're facing is bureaucracy. And you said that you also have to like get a note from the Ministry for Education. Like, could you tell us a little bit about what's the red tape about and why? When you go to some schools, they'll ask you, do you have a permit from the, the education ministry? So you have to go write a letter, take it to the education ministry, stating what you want to do, the areas that you want to cover. Then they'll ask you for a Kenya Revenue Authority PIN, personal PIN number, your certificates. Wow. Yeah. So you have to give them all that. Then you have to wait. It depends, you can even wait for a month for the letter to come out. And then maybe to, at the local level, maybe at the county level, it may be required again to go to the county level to get another letter again. So when you go to a school, you present the two letters to the school. So it is not easy. Wow. I had no idea. We used to have guest speakers come to school often and I went to a public primary school. So it was never an issue. It was you just go to the headmistress and ask her if you can, you know, share something with the students. And if she thought it was of value or he thought it was of value, then they were allowed in the, in the classroom. So, wow, that's quite unfortunate. It depends with the school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are some schools that are quite okay, the way, the, the way you have said, and there are some schools that are, are quite difficult to access them. Yeah, I guess that's to be expected. In an interview with CNN, you said that your journey to keep Nairobi green has been seven years long, and it's been a tough battle. But you also said that, you know, Nairobi belongs to us and the environment belongs to us. How are you trying to create a sense of belonging or ownership for our environment in Kenya? Nairobi has a challenge in that uh, most people living in Nairobi are immigrants. They came from other areas. They came to Nairobi in search of a living. And so they've never believed that Nairobi is their home. They believe I'll be in Nairobi for a certain time of period of time, then I'll go back to where I came from. But unfortunately, they find themselves they are here for the rest of their lives and they even die from here. So the challenge that I've seen mostly for the last couple of years is that people, they don't have ownership. Even if I litter, even if I mess up the area, I come from a certain place X. Place X is where I can care, but here I don't care about it. So amongst the citizens, there's a lack of ownership. Lack of ownership and ignorance, the two challenges that are bedeviling our country that I've quite noted. So making people understand that where they are, this is their home, and charity begins at home. Even if you came there as an immigrant, just take an extra effort to make sure that your area is clean. It won't cost you a leg or foot, because if you make your area dirty, it will cost you more in terms of hospitalization. Let's say if a kid drinks contaminated water, they get typhoid or waterborne diseases, and then we are in the same place that we are we are ranked among the poorest country in the world. So the little income that you make will be spent in hospitalization and making you more poorer. So that, that's the kind of message I try to I try to impact on people. Mm-hmm. And you have a great initiative of the Nairobi River cleanup. It's sort of this, I guess, this massive initiative that the government is trying to undertake for the third time to clean up the Nairobi River that 
passes through the city and you have been working with some youth in a certain part of the Nairobi River watershed. Could you tell us a little bit about that initiative? Yeah, the youth groups are in Korogosho. They are called Green Solutions. It's a group of reformed, reformed young people. Most of them used to engage in crime, but they are slowly coming out of it. So I met them. They showed me the interest that they have in protecting the river and conserving the river. But they, as I said before, they also lacked the know-how. How should we go about it? What should we do? What are the kind of plants that we should grow? So I trained around 100 of them. I trained 100 of them on repairing ecosystem restoration, talking about the river itself, looking at the water quality, using how do you, how can you measure, how can you tell water quality from the invertebrates in the water, what is supposed to do, the, the riparian zone. So I did all that. I trained a hundred of them, and that's how my journey with them began. It is something that can be replicated along the whole river for the endeavors to restore the river to be a success. Although the restoration of the river is, is a complicated endeavor because there are a variety of infrastructure development that needs to be put in place. Let's say, for example, like the, the sewer lines that flow, the sewer pipelines that are along the river up to maybe to the Puruai are very old and they are broken and they spew all the sewage into the river. So such kind of things need to be fixed up. And then uh, waste disposal mechanisms. People don't have where to dispose of the waste in their estates. They are, all the available spaces has been grabbed. So the only space that is available is, is the river. So waste management has to be addressed. And then infrastructure. There are lakes in the slums. There are no roads for these trucks to come and pick up this waste in, in case, even if it's full. So again, the, the, the roads infrastructure needs to be put in place in order to be able to evacuate these waste easily. And then things like the drainage channels. There are no drainage channels in some of our slums. So whenever it rains, it carries all the solid waste into the river. So those are the challenges that are, are there. And uh, as I said before, it, it requires both the communities, the residents, and the, and the government to to come and work, work hand in hand in order to address those challenges, in order to restore our rivers. Yeah, it's quite a complex issue and there's so many nuances to it that it really requires this massive behavior change, but also just change in perception of how we view the river as it's basically dead. <laughs> Nothing lives in it. You wouldn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And it's really quite unfortunate how it's deteriorated over the past few years. But thank you for actually doing the work on the ground and empowering the youth with that kind of information and helping them make a change because it makes a difference. In that same vein, what advice would you give to other African environmentalists who are in the profession or are maybe considering this profession? So I guess there are two questions. They're considering and in the profession. What advice would you give them? Mm, those who are considering to be in the profession, they should know that uh, environmentalism is not, a, is not a money-making venture. Unless you think outside the box, let's say, for example, good, maybe you think of how to use the knowledge that you gained to generate income from, income from it. Let's say, for example, the 
the green enterprises, recycling, the renewable energies and stuff, that's one aspect of it. The profit-oriented thing should not be the driving force. And then the people who are in it, I will just tell them to be resilient, not they are doing, not give up. They should always uh, read more, learn more, try to tinker on how to do a thing. Don't don't be so rigid, trying to be being flexible. I should say that we should be like a tree. The wind blows you, but you never break. Just flow with the wind here and there, but don't be so rigid and be open-minded to new ideas, to new people on how you do your thing. And yeah, and all will be well. That's great advice. One of the things that I'm curious to know is you're sort of like working in the front lines. And I'm sure there are many days when you feel really just kind of frustrated and maybe downtrodden by the bureaucracy or the mindsets. How do you keep yourself resilient? Is there anything specifically that you do to stay more balanced? I think those days are are, are even more than the days that things are okay because the kind of pressure, stress that you experience in the field is, is enormous. It's quite, quite enormous. So for me, what I do usually, I'm a Catholic by faith. I usually carry my rosary, say my rosary prayers or or some days I just decided to I just decided to switch off everything. I, I don't receive any call. I completely switch off and do something quite different from I don't do or think of anything environmental related. I just switch off my mind it could be like for three days, two days. Yeah. Then after those two days is when I come back onto it. Or if possible, I travel, go and visit, check out my family, how they are. And when I go there, I don't talk anything environmental. I just completely switch off. And that's how I'm able to manage. It's quite a healthy way of managing it. And I appreciate that you are talking about the importance of self-care and just taking a step away from it. Because I think we can easily just get spent, especially doing this type of work. So. Thank you for sharing those helpful tips on what others can do to to rejuvenate and also to like protect themselves through a very like vulnerable process or experience. So in your mind, what is sort of like your vision for the future of the environment in Africa and what's your role in that vision? Mm, my vision is, uh, is an Africa whereby our government's will take environmental conservation as a priority. Let it not be something like what you are seeing now. It is something, an A or B, it becomes a priority. And uh, my vision is that at that time, I would like to be in the forefront. I would like to be like a catalyst towards achieving that. Because uh, Africa is not, is not yet industrialized. Africa is still is a continent that is, we are still okay. But our priorities are not that well. And environmentalism has taken a backseat. So there's a mentality that development and environmental conservation cannot work hand in hand. Uh, my vision is to see at a, at a time whereby our governments will be, whenever they think of development, they'll be thinking of making sure the environment is also protected and conserved. They'll not be doing things unilaterally because uh, 
you can do some things in unilaterally, but you pay the price. So I hope and pray that in future our governments will be more, will put environmentalism at the forefront and not at the back seat. Yeah. Well, I, I really hope so because no one else is going to come and save it for us except for ourselves. Thank you for your efforts. So we're reaching the end of our conversation here, unfortunately. And I have a lightning round where I ask a series of four questions and you can answer the first thing that comes to your mind. So my first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? There's a book I'm reading again for the second time called Laudato Si. It's by, written by Pope Francis. It's on, it talks about mm-hmm. links in religion and environmental conservation. Mm. Very interesting. And is there like a highlight that you can share with us that you've read so far in that book? There's something about the creation story of how God, man was created last, but he created all these other things before man. And then man was given that the mandate to take care of the natural flora and fauna. But God did say that man should destroy them. He said they should, should take care. So it's something that's really touching. Yeah. I remember learning that in our Christian religion education classes. That's something that, that stuck with me when we were learning about the Bible. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Being persistent. I never quit, no matter how difficult the situation is. I just, I retreat back, plan again, and do it. I never quit without a fight. Yeah, you, you adapt. Yeah, just adapt to the situation. Just retreat, plan, then come back and execute what you are, you are to do. Yeah, that's smart. What's the best piece of advice you've received? Mm, so far is uh, having an open mind. Have an open mind because when you go out there, you know, when the challenges you have, like in the environmental field you've studied in school, you go at somewhere with a fixated mind. This is how it's supposed to be done. So you may end up doing a mistake, but with an open mind, when you go to the ground, hear to what people are saying, then integrate with what you have, and then voila, something good will come out of it instead of just being fixated. And we need to be open-minded. We're going into uncharted territory, as, especially as environmentalists, and we can't think of doing things the way we always did it because it's not working for us. So yeah, I think that's essential. Finally, what is your superpower? <laughs> my superpower? My charm, maybe. <laughs> your charm, yeah. Yeah, that's how you convince people not to litter. <laughs> yeah, you have, that's the only thing. You have, to, you have to charm yourself into their hearts so that they, they believe what you're saying so that they soften their hearts and attitudes towards life. Yeah. It's like I was having a conversation with another podcast guest. Her name is Ariel Maldonado. And she was talking about how she uses humor to communicate with her followers on on Instagram. And she has found that that has been received quite well. And uh, people are more willing to listen to kind of the advice that she has to offer or tips on how they can make better environmentally friendly decisions. So I'm totally in agreement with you on that one. So now that we've come to the end of our conversation here, where can we find you or follow you on your journey? You can follow me on Twitter at Mazingirayetu 
or on Facebook as Sam Dindi or Mazingira Yetu. LinkedIn, Sam Dindi. Yeah. Great. Is there anything else you would like to add before we end the session here? My line always, persistence trumps resistance. No matter how difficult the situation is where you're going to work, keep persisting on what you do, apply always and means and the resistance on the other side will subside and you'll have your way. So keep persisting and the resistance will go down. Yeah. Well, this has been quite an enlightening conversation and I feel like a boost of energy here. So thank you so much for your charm <laughs> and for your wisdom. In, uh, oh, most welcome. Yeah, appreciate it. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.